Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband, Josh, wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way and then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. Garden Church Podcast. All right. So if you have a Bible, which you should have some because you are either at home or at someone's house, um, or you can go online, the text will be up here. Um, but we're going to read together some scripture. And I was, I was preparing in Luke, and I thought, man, I really need to t- teach on this passage um, for lots of reasons. But it's in the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 8, um, and we're going to look at a story in Luke that's probably very familiar for many of us. It's verse 22, it says this. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped, and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him up, saying, Master, Master, We're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. One observation I want to make this morning is that Jesus 
was a non-anxious presence. I remember sitting with Pastor Bill when I was going through a crisis, um, and he said to me, and I'll never forget, he said, if Jesus isn't worried about something, you don't have to be either. If Jesus isn't worried about something, you don't have to be either. To be a non-anxious presence is, isn't just about the absence of anxiety in your life or fear. It's about the presence of something else. And so the Bible talks a lot about this something else. That word is peace. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 through 23, there's a list that Paul gives us of the fruit. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In John, uh, I'm sorry, in Psalm chapter 29, verse 11, uh, the psalmist says this. He says, the Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. In John chapter 14, as Jesus kind of speaks to his disciples near the end of his time on earth, he says to them, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And then a couple chapters later, in the same dialogue with his disciples, in chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus has this line. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. Can I get an amen? But take heart. I have overcome the world. So peace in the scripture is fruit from intimacy with God, from the presence and power of the Holy Spirit permeating through your life over time. Peace is something that God blesses his people with. Peace is what Jesus, uh, is what Jesus gives us. And peace is found in Jesus for the trouble we will face in the world. So today I want to talk about engaging in culture as the non-anxious presence. Or you could say engaging in culture as a person of peace. So let's go back to this text and look at Luke chapter 8. Um, and let's just give you some context. And I love doing this, are you with me? In your homes, are you with me? Okay, are you guys with me? <laughs> I got like eight. All right, good, that's gonna help me. Okay, context, here we go. Jesus says, hey, let's go to the other side of the lake. Now, this is a big deal. Because what's on the other side of the lake? It's the Gerasenes. It's where the Gentiles live. And you know, because of our, our context studies in the past, that in the first century, a Jew would never go to a land full of Gentiles. They avoided each other. And fishermen would never cross the lake. That was rarely a thing that would happen. They would go around the lake where they could see um, the, the sea line or the coast. And so... First of all, that was an extraordinary ask because you would already say, um, you would already be expecting not to do something like this. So there's already something going on. On top of that, in the Jewish mindset, I'm not talking about the Gentiles or pagans, but the Jewish mindset had this paradigm, this context, this worldview that shaped how they lived. And they believed um, different territories had different deities and powers over those territories. And so the sea throughout the Hebrew scripture is seen as chaos, chaotic and cha uh, full of chaos because it was, you could say, possessed or controlled by other powers, gods, lowercase gods or deities. Um, the Gerasenes, the other side, would be a territory 
dedicated to other gods. So you wouldn't travel across the lake for lots of reasons. Practically, it was dangerous. Sea of Galilee was 700 plus feet below sea level, and it was surrounded by mountains. So the fact that a squall came or a storm came was common. Winds would rush and stir up the lake. Um, but also because your paradigm, the worldview that you grew up in, taught you to avoid such a situation because there were other deities that had power and control over the chaotic waters. Are you with me? Yes. Culture. They had, you could say, they were raised in a particular culture. Every culture hands you a worldview or a pair of glasses to look through. And you can't help it. Every culture hands you a pair of glasses. You're all filtering life through your culture. Whether you believe this or not, this is truth. Culture is not created by autonomous individuals. It's created by communal agreements and corporate practices and beliefs. So, and what you need to know, and what's important to this context or this story, is how you see the world shapes the way you live and interact in the world. It shapes your perspective. I remember when I was traveling from Montana to Seattle, and I had a layover in, in Seattle, and this is 2015, not during a major crisis. In 2015, I had to get off the plane, and I had about an hour before my next flight. And I remember looking at my phone, and then looking at my next flight, and my phone said 2.37 p.m., and my next scheduled flight was 2.45 p.m. And have you ever been in that situation where you're about to miss something? My body was immediately filled with anxiety. I was already imagining myself trying to be the first person off the plane because I was the most important person in that moment, rushing down um, the, the hallways or the airport like in that movie Home Alone, um, I heard the music in my head and everything, trying to get on to the next flight so I wouldn't miss it. And I remember panicking and thinking, okay, I got to get my bag. And I started mapping out what I had to do. And then we landed and I turned my phone on to, to call Alex to see if there were other uh, flights that I could get on because I knew I was going to miss it. And my phone reset to a different time zone and it was 1.37, not 2.37. And in that moment, all the anxiety was gone perspective is everything. How you see the world shapes the way you live and interact in the world. So the disciples say, we are going to drown because it's true. It says that they were in danger. And so their fear was legitimate. It was a possibility. It was a potential outcome, especially if they're looking through the lens of their culture, where the, the, the waves and the waters were controlled by other deities. They grew up in a particular way that produced a certain level of expectation from them. We, we have the same thing. Right now in our culture, what's expected of us is anxiety. What's expected of us is fear and outrage. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like people have bad news and they want you to be like overwhelmed around the facts that they're presenting to you like they are. Does anyone else in this room know what I'm talking about? Like, am I just, it's like people bring news and they want you to be as excited, as hopeful or as anxious. And right now in our culture, it seems like there's a crisis going on where the world wants us to be in the crisis. And what do the disciples do? They wake up Jesus because they perceive a crisis is happening. And I, I promise you, this is what my prayer life is like. Jesus, <clears throat> do you know how bad it really is right now? 
Do you know? Because my image of this like relaxed, non-anxious presence is this idea that Jesus doesn't care. That he's like somewhere else. He's in la-la land. But that's not Jesus. He's actually very aware of the crisis at hand in your life. In this situation, he was taking a nap. And so the disciples wake him up to bring them into this thing. This, they want Jesus to respond to their anxiety and crisis. So they present the crisis to him. How does Jesus respond to the anxiety and the urgency and the crisis that's presented to him? You think about it for a moment. In your own head, if you were in that situation, how does Jesus respond? And it says, but it, I was thinking about it this week and it reminded me of when I first bought um, my first house in 2015. Um, we lived by the airport and we were changing the fixtures of one of the bathrooms um, in, the, in the bathtub. And I remember we broke a pipe in the process of trying to change the fixture. And I still to this day know nothing about plumbing. But in that moment, there was all sorts of uh-oh, uncertainty, probably some language in there, chaos, I'm freaking out. <clears throat> My mom had a handyman friend. And so she's like, I'll just call him up and let's see. So he comes over and he says, and this is, I should have saw this coming. He says, I think I can fix it. I don't really work with plumbing very often, but he, I remember he said, I think I can fix it. And sure enough, he breaks open the tile. He does all this work. He buys a bunch of other stuff and uh, he can't fix it. And so finally I call a plumber and he was a friend who was in our church at the time. And I remember he came in and his response, he's like, why did he go through the tile? What is it? He's like, and I'm like, I don't know. I'm trying to explain everything. And I'm like picking up the pieces, handing it. He's like, he's like, Darren, 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 Darren. Don't worry, I've got this. Don't worry, I've got this. Oh, I just remember like from going and thinking back going, I think I can fix this. I think I can fix this too. Don't worry, <clears throat> I've got this. And he did, he fixed it. There were no issues. I didn't worry anymore. He, he patched it up. He went to the outside and he made it happen. And <clears throat> I think about this all the time. Um, this idea of what happens when somebody who really does got this steps in to make something happen. It's like my wife with my two-year-old. Amos, you're probably watching. Maybe you're not. But there are moments where I am trying to just change a diaper. That's all I'm trying to do, which is something that happens with little kids all the time. But for whatever reason, Amos doesn't want daddy to change the diaper. And so he protests dramatically. And it gets to the point where I can't hold him down long enough. And so finally, and I kid you not, this happened yesterday. He's throwing a fit. Mommy walks into the room and he just lays down peacefully for her like a perfect little angel because mommy's got this. And some of you are saying, amen. You know what I'm talking about? This is the point. How does Jesus respond to the anxiety in the crisis? I've got this. He rebukes the wind and the waters, it says that the storm subsided, and I love this, all was calm. All was calm. And that's a powerful teaching moment for Jesus. And I'm like, gosh, imagine what he could have done in that moment. But he asks a question. And this is what got me baffled this week. <clears throat> of all the questions he could have asked, of all the things he could have taught his disciples in that moment, 
What he asks in the Gospel of Luke is, where is your faith? Where is your faith? His response to being woken up by the disciples is, where is your faith? Faith has something to do with how we live and interact in the world. You see, Jesus questions their faith in regards to how they respond to the storm. Isn't this crazy? Like, I thought faith has something to do with spiritual things, with the religious parts of our lives. But what Jesus is saying is faith actually has something to do with how we respond to crazy weather. Think about it. Faith has something to do with the way we see the world, the way we live our everyday life. Jesus wants to give you a new culture. He wants to give you a new way of seeing the world. And that has something to do with this concept of faith. Now stay with me for a moment. Faith is not ignorance to circumstances. It's confidence in something else other than the circumstances. So faith defined in, in, in Greek is to believe in something. It's to have confidence in something or reliability. But it's also the same word for trust. Faith is trusting Jesus. It's trusting in Jesus. And what I mean by that is it's trusting in his way about things, his timing about things, his truth about things. It's not about acting out of ignorance. It's about learning to walk in the way of Jesus, relaxing into trusting Jesus. This is what faith is, and it's interactive. It's part of your everyday life. It's not a compartment of your spiritual life. It's for everyday moments. It's active. It's dynamic. Your faith, it must be reprocessed when circumstances change. How will you live faithful and faith-filled when things go sideways, when the storms come? What will you do in those situations? This is what faith is made of. This is where the power of faith comes in. Do you allow your circumstances to move your emotional state of existence, your mental systems of belief? Do you fall apart or is there deep down inside you this thing called trust in who God is that enables you to go through the storm, that empowers you to live as a non-anxious presence? when literally the world is in a pandemic. You see, when you think of Jesus, do you think of him as the kind of person who says, well, I think I've got this. I think I can fix this, excuse me. Or is he the kind of person that when you actually put your life into his hands, you hear, don't worry, I've got this. The disciples were overwhelmed by um, the storm and by what was taking place. And then they're overwhelmed in a different way. They're full of fear and amazement by what Jesus does. He calms the storm. And the question then they ask, after Jesus asks, where's your faith? They ask this question, who is this? Who is this? He commands even the winds and the waters, and they obey him. 
Brothers and sisters, this is where we, why? This is why we have to get Jesus right. We have to know who Jesus really is. And we have to rearrange and reorder our, our cultural lenses, our, our belief systems, our thoughts and our ideas about the way we think the world works in order to live appropriately in this world. You see, in the story of Luke, the disciples don't know who Jesus really is until later on in the Gospel of Luke. They think he's a rabbi, he's a prophet, maybe he's the Messiah or Savior, but what they come to confess is that he is the Son of God. And what you have to know is there's only one being in creation that speaks and waters and storms obey, and that's Yahweh in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 in the story. And so now they're, they're forced to un- at wrestle with this question, who is Jesus? And just a side note, because I love the Bible, um, that question is answered in the very next story where they get to the other side of the lake and um, they're worried about it being devoted to other gods. And sure enough, they're met by one of those people, those Gentiles, who is actually possessed with thousands of demons. And he runs up to Jesus answering the disciples' question, who is this? And he says, what do you want with us, son of the most? high God. Isn't it interesting that oftentimes in moments of crisis, it's the people who don't know who Jesus is quite yet that get him the most? Where the church in this moment wants to worry and complain about not gathering publicly when this is our opportunity to go and mobilize our compassion to get around the needs of the city and wash people's feet and then obviously wash our hands, but wash people's feet and care for the sick and not worry about whether or not we're going to make it. Pastors don't need to worry about budget because this is a moment where the church is going to come alive. God is going to move. I know it. Did you think that we are praying for revival, things would have to be the same? Do you think we'd be able to be as distracted as we were? Pastors need to become generals. They need to stop worrying about their content and how people are going to get their content. And they need to mobilize the servants of God on mission. This is our moment and we need people of faith. That's not in the notes, by the way, so you're welcome. So apparently, Spirit's still moving over here in Studio Garden. Where's your faith? I was thinking about this. Okay. If they had faith, would they have worried about the storm? If they had faith, would they have needed to even wake Jesus up? If faith has something to do with how you perceive storms, because this is what Jesus is asking. If they had faith, would they have just kept rowing? And maybe reorganized and had a couple of people getting the water out and just say, hey, he said to do it. Let's just do it. Let's be obedient and wise and change our tactics. If they had faith, could they have calmed the storm themselves? If being like your rabbi is learning to be with him, become like him and do what he did, do you think Jesus wants to empower his people to carry his power and authority over the cosmos as we are co-heirs with Christ in the ways that he did on earth. Now, I'm just throwing that out there. I'm not going to give you answers, but you do the work to figure that out. But we find ourselves in a massive storm, a storm of fear and anxiety, of incredible uncertainty 
And there are legitimate reasons to be afraid. Fear is a natural response to what is happening. The coronavirus is scary. But I guess that question is, who is this, is most important. Who do you believe Jesus is? Who do you believe is in the boat with you? And I think that's what matters in our life in this moment. I was praying yesterday, and I, I, was, I was like, are there any more stories in the scripture of storms? And I was thinking of Jonah. And I'm like, that's not a good one right now. Uh, getting swallowed by a whale, that would be just, uh, I don't even know if that works. And then the Lord was like, no, there's one in Acts. The, the gospel writer Luke also wrote a story in Acts 27 of another storm in a sea. And uh, I love the story because it's very fascinating. Luke was actually with Paul, who was at this point a prisoner uh, going to a place to be per, uh, put on trial in Rome. And he, in 27, is found uh, to be in a major storm where it says there were hurricane winds. And as a prisoner, he's under the authority of the guards and, uh, over the, uh, and the captains and those that were commanding the ship. And it gets to a point where it's building up and this storm is getting worse and worse. And they're about to abandon everything and they don't know what to do. And Paul who's the prisoner, no authority whatsoever in this context, begins to say, I I've had enough. And he addresses his captors. He addresses the Roman guards and the captain and the rest of the people working on the ship and traveling on this boat. And he says um, in Acts 27, he says, but now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. And listen to this. Last night, an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Come on, church. There's a hurricane-like hurricane -like winds happening. <clears throat> Everyone's panicked. And Paul is visited by an angel of the Lord in the middle of the night. And he stands up with shackles and says to everyone as a non-anxious presence, don't worry, we're going to get through this. Because what I have some work to do on earth. God is going to use me for his purposes, and I have faith in God. Not in the storm, not in even being abandoned and shipwrecked. I have faith that God will be faithful to his words. You see, his belief, his faith shaped the reality around him. They did what Paul said because Paul was a man of faith. Can I get an amen? <clears throat> I don't even know how long I've been going. How, how long has it been? Do you, anyone know? <clears throat> I'm going to keep going. You know what? Because you can just shut me off. Um, we don't have a second service. There's no overflow today. Kids, kids are going to be fine. All right, let me just say a couple more thoughts and we'll close. Our beliefs and our thoughts shape our life. And I can't reiterate this enough. That when we talk about faith, we're talking about how we live and interact in the world. When we talk about um, how we see the world, we know that we have been impacted by cultural lens, that our, 
our ideas about the world have been shaped by the culture that we live in. So Jesus wants to give us a new pair of lens to see the world through. That's a faith lens. But in order to change, in order to step into faith, we have to change our belief systems. We have to take a set of glasses off and put a new set on. But that's a process. And there's all sorts of work being done <coughs> about our mind and our thoughts. Because how you think shapes the way you live. There's a neuroscientist who wrote a book called Who Switched Off My Brain? Written by Dr. Carolyn Leaf. And I'm just summarizing some of her points here. She says, our thoughts travel on brain highways called neural pathways. She describes a neural pathway like a hot marble being dropped through a block of cheese. And I just say that illustration because I'm on the Daniel Fast like many of you and I'm craving cheese. Metaphorically speaking, she says, the wider the highway, the easier it is to repeat the same thought in your head. And so more, the more we repeat the same thought, <clears throat> the wider the physical highway in our brains get. So the more you think a thought, the easier it is to think that same thought. Which, by the way, is why it's so hard for us to break our mindsets, to change our destructive thoughts that we have embedded into our schemas, into our brains since we were kids. Another neuroscientist says something like this. Neural pathways of thoughts in our brains are like the jungle. You start thinking a thought, and first, it's like taking a machete and hacking a path through the jungle. And the more you think that thought, the wider that path gets until, as someone I heard recently say, it becomes like a six-lane highway. Your thoughts that are repeated over time become like a six-lane highway. So this is helpful, right? So it's helpful in remembering people's names. It's helpful for all of you physicians or nurses out there that had to memorize and study and do things to do them naturally. It's helpful for a million reasons. I wake up in the morning and I make coffee. I don't go to Google and say, how do I have to make coffee every day? My mind has been created in such a way where I can think, these thoughts naturally without really having to think these thoughts at all. They become a natural flow. <clears throat> I naturally go to think these things. Now, that's great, but it's terrible when it comes to our view of what God can do if we doubt. It's terrible when it comes to our self-perception. If you struggle with insecurity or self-doubt or fear, <clears throat> you have a six-lane highway into that insecurity. You have a six-lane highway into you're not enough. You have a six-lane highway into everyone, uh, no one's going li to really like me for who I am. You have a six-lane highway into God's not here and I'm alone. You see, the more we think these thoughts, the more we believe these things, the wider that highway gets. So the process of transformation is replacing old thoughts with new thoughts. We've done a lot of work on this. Um, but it's important to recognize that this is a process. I love what Dallas Willard says. It's not on the screen. But I'm going to quote something I, I put in here just a moment ago. He says, <clears throat> what we place our minds on brings that reality into our lives. If we place our minds on God, that reality of God comes into our lives. I just want you to remember this. That reality of God comes into our lives. Wrong ideas about God make it impossible for us to function in relationship with one another. We are not able to love one another because we do not have our minds filled with an accurate vision of God. This is Dallas Willard's beautiful way of saying we, 
what we believe to be true about God or reality will shape the way we live and act, live and interact in the world with each other, ourselves, and the rest of humanity. So let me just close um, with a couple more thoughts. Number one, Jesus wants to change. Sorry, I'm not closing. Let me just keep going. Jesus wants to change the way you interact and live in the world. And the way he's going to do that, the way he's going to bring about transformation in your life begins with how you think. Okay? Now just stay with me. In John chapter 8, Jesus says this to his disciples. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, the Greek word for truth is also translated to reality. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the reality, God's reality. And God's reality, his truth, will set you free. Can I get an amen? This is why Romans 12, Paul says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve God's will his good and pleasing and perfect will. Changing your minds, changing the way you think about things will change your life. What would it look like for us as a church to have a six-lane highway to the mind of Christ? Rather than going to the worst-case scenario, you go to the Jesus thought. Rather than going to insecurity, rather than reacting to fear or I'm not enough, you go to what Jesus would think in that situation because if he's not worried about it, you don't have to be. What if our first thoughts went to God's truth, God's promises, his words? What if it wasn't to the news and what they're saying, but actually, excuse me, what God's saying in this moment? <clears throat> you see, we live in a world right now that is overwhelmed by facts. Can I get an amen? Now, facts are helpful. They're useful, but they will not set you free. Facts will not bring you to the place of peace you desire deep in your soul. Facts are only part of the story. Truth has the final say because it's Jesus. Jesus is what? The way, the truth, and the life. Truth has the final say. Let me just explain this through biblical terms. The story of Lazarus. Fact. Lazarus was dead. Truth. God has the power to raise the dead. Can I get an amen? The story of Bartimaeus, fact, <clears throat> he was blind, truth. Jesus has the power to give sight to the blind. The story of feeding of the 5,000, we only have, fact, we only have five loaves and two fish, truth. Jesus says, in my own words, I've got this. When we live in a world, or when we live with a worldly perspective, <clears throat> we will learn to only trust facts. In this age of information, it seems like the more we know about something actually doesn't bring more peace. It gives us more anxiety, and we feel like we need to know more facts. It becomes this exhausted circle of pursuing more information and more information. I'm not saying don't read the news and don't be someone who's informed, but what I know is faith empowers you to live in truth. Facts don't have power. They just are what is. <laughs> Truth is what raises our head to what God can do despite the facts. Facts don't get to define us. Truth defines us. 
facts. The storm is overwhelming us. Truth. Jesus is still in the boat. So brothers and sisters, now I want to close. I want to encourage you to be a non-anxious presence because we know truth. The world is looking at facts, but they need truth. So the question I leave you with is, where is your faith? We are in a moment where people need men and women of faith. Men and women who have learned over time to pattern their life, pattern their decisions, pattern their habits and their finances and their belief systems around a resurrected Jesus. Jesus wants to empower you in this moment to bring peace on earth, to extend his way of life on earth as it is in heaven. So Garden Church, I don't want you to be naive. I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to disengage with placating statements that are Christianese, quoting texts, scriptures out of context, thinking that's going to help this moment. I don't want you to be selfish as the church and focus on your own unique family. We must be wise. We must ask God to give us revelation of wisdom. Can I just tell you something? And this is for the Garden Church. For those of you that are streaming and you're not part of our church, I want to tell you something. Mid-February, the Lord told me to prepare our church for coronavirus, prepare our church to respond to what's about to happen, that we wouldn't be able to meet publicly in large gatherings, and that we have to do this before it happens. And we as a church made decisions on, a, on Tuesday and Wednesday of this week before all of the crisis started to roll out, before decisions were made by our governor, before decisions were made by our city, because I feel like God gave us the information. Prophetically, he used us to prepare. And now we're being a resource for other churches. And I'm not saying that because, oh, look at us. But I am, I am saying that God wants to give you access to his thoughts, his wisdom, his ideas. And so don't just go to the news and don't just go to the resources. Go to the resource, the source of the resource. We need to be invested. We need to be wise but we also need to be invested in what's going on in the world and in the city. There is this passage of scripture we need to pray, and it's in Jeremiah 29, where it talks about praying for the welfare of the city. We need to pray for our city. We need to be invested. We need to have our intercessors carry the weight of this crisis in our hearts, but not as a way of spreading anxiety, but as a way of bringing that to God on behalf of the rest of the world, which is why we're gonna do 24-7 prayer. It's why we're gonna be spending a lot of time praying as a church. We need to be compassionate and care for those around us. We need to change our thought systems in this time to become people of faith. And I want to encourage you to live as a person of faith. And so that's all I got. Worship team is going to lead a song that's about who God is and where we go from here. But I want to finish as they come up with Ephesians chapter 1. And this is Paul's prayer. And this is a beautiful prayer for all of us. I'm going to read this out loud. So would you just open up your hands and close your eyes? Because I want to ask, this is a prayer of impartation. Paul says this in Ephesians 1, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you 
the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him, Jesus, to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church. Fire.